Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show Always love talking to Ken Follett, the author of Eye of the Needle and his new thriller called Never. He's always interesting. He sold 160 million copies of his books overall. He's a massive bestseller. We talk about not only his process of creating a best-selling thriller and how he looks at plot, character, and everything else, but also we talked about the current world situation and how the world could end, which of course is great material for thriller writers and something we should all be wary of. You get COVID yet or anything? None of my family has caught the virus, I'm happy to say. And Oh, good. Uh, in this country or in the States. And actually none of my employees has caught it. But we've been very careful, you know. Here in my house, where we have cleaners and, and like that, um, we all wear masks when, when we meet the staff here. It's interesting the different levels of security and concern people have around the world and around the country and so on. Thank God you haven't gotten it. And I'm just curious, 
when you say employees, like I think people don't typically think of authors as having many employees, but obviously you're a franchise practically. Like you're you're an author first and foremost and a great one, but after you sell a hundred million books or so, there's so many things to think about as a business. You're a, a, a very huge revenue generating business. What do your employees do? In the office, I have 25 people. What they mainly do is contracts and finance. What this business is, is international licensing of intellectual property. That's complicated. So for every book in every country, there's at least, in every language, there's at least one contract and usually several. So I have now, after 50 years of doing this, nearly 50 years, I have thousands of contracts. Every live contract generates two statements a year and they have to be checked because you can't just sit back and hope that the publishers don't make any little mistakes. Hmm. So uh, they negotiate contracts, get everything signed up, and they check the statements. And then, of course, there's a group of people in the publicity department whose job is to arrange for me to talk to people like you. Oh, excellent. And I'm, I'm glad, thankful for those people. Now, on the, on the contracts, but I know this is getting in the weeds, and I want to talk about your mind-blowing novel that just came out, Never. But... Doesn't uh, your literary agent handle all the international rights and things like that? Or or did you decide it was, because this is so extensive, a part of your revenues, it was cheaper to bring it in-house? Uh, it, it's not really a question of cheapness, but I did have an agent, a New York agent, for many years. But there came a time when I wanted to control this myself. I wanted things done in slightly different ways. And I had a piece of luck. My wife retired from politics uh, 11 years ago, and I made her an offer she couldn't refuse. And so she came to work for me. She now runs that office. And, you know, um, when she was um, a government minister, uh, she one evening um, sitting at her desk in our house, she signed off 70 billion pounds, a budget of 70 billion pounds. And so for her, my money is peanuts. That's, that's so funny. Well, actually, that brings up a good point. And we're, and we'll start to segue into never here. But first, can I just say thank you for writing this novel? This was a I was really looking for, regardless of whether or not we were going to do a podcast, I was re really looking for a good, just meaty thriller set in modern times to just read and enjoy. And you know, and well-written, not like, you know, any kind of cheesy stuff happening. This was a great thriller novel. It's been a while since you wrote like a pure eye of the needle style thriller novel. True. That's true. And I'm really glad that you enjoyed it so much. And, and your reaction is exactly the reaction I was hoping for from my readers. And it's, um, in, it is, it is a thriller, but it's a little bit more than a thriller. And it's, it's kind of, you know, I wrote Eye of the Needle um, more than 40 years ago, and um, the differences are interesting. Eye of the Needle is, is, the big thing about Eye of the Needle was that the hero was a woman, and that had never been done before. But in other respects, it was kind of, it was like a thriller. There was a bad guy, and there was a good guy, or in this case, a good woman. Uh, and at the end of the novel, second half of the novel, really, they have a terrific battle on a lonely island. And it's about two people. And in Never, there is not a Dr. Evil, you know, and there is not a James Bond in a sharp suit coming to destroy Dr. Evil. That's the pattern for thrillers, but we don't have that in Never. As, as you'll have noticed, there's a group of people who are trying to prevent a war. 
And a few people who are not so keen on preventing a war, although they don't really want it, but they sort of push the others towards war. And really, it's a complex interaction of, of half a dozen people rather than the battle between two. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you, you know what this oddly reminds me of? It's, it's not the same plot or structure at all, but there's there's aspects that remind me of The Godfather, actually. And I'll tell you why. And you could, I, I, if you agree or disagree, it's, an, it's interesting to me. You create a world that's roughly similar to our current world. And on a, on a global level, you have these proxy wars fought in small countries that are really disguising much bigger issues between, let's say, in this case, like China and the U.S. But also, this book creates a world filled with characters who have huge backstories, some of which we don't even know their full backstories, but I'm sure you have thought of them and, and know them. And just like in The Godfather, there's lots of even minor characters where Mario Puzo even goes off for like 30 or 40 pages discussing some of their backstories and never refers to them again for the rest of the book. And I'm not saying you do that either, but I got the sense of real world building here that you knew a lot more about these characters in order to be basically show us the tip of the iceberg. You knew the iceberg, that there was a huge world behind them. And that's what gives such depth to the tip of the iceberg. First of all, James, thank you for the comparison. I'm extremely pleased to have my novel compared with The Godfather. It's a book I admire enormously, and, and for exactly the reason that you just mentioned, because it's not just a crime novel. It's about a whole culture. And, I, and as you say, all of those people have backstories, so they're rounded. What the, the, what I, the, the way I put it is the characters must have a life outside the story. It's not just about what they do to progress the story. They are rounded people, and you can feel that they're real. And, and I think we like that when we read, because I'm a reader, you and I are readers, uh, uh, as well as authors. And uh, I, like I like that in stories because you've got to feel worried about the character, haven't you? You've, you've got to hope that things turn out well for the character. You've got to be afraid that things are going to go wrong and it's, things are going to be sad. You feel it emotionally for the character, and you can only do that if it's a rounded character that you can believe might be real. Right. So even, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, it's always careful when I, uh, you have to be careful when doing a podcast about a novel, because I would love to talk about things, you know, throughout the book, and but I don't want to, I'm very sensitive to giving away any spoilers, but I'll, let's just discuss some of the characters in the beginning. Like, the president of the United States, Pauline Green, is first off a woman. So you know right away, what you start thinking, I start thinking, what was that election like? What political party is she? You know, you know, you know the problems women have had in engaging in politics. I mean, there's never been a, a female president of the United States. So that's by itself is interesting. And then you meet her family and write, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say fairly close to the beginning in the first 100 pages, there's issues with some issues with the daughter, you get a sense of the daughter's personality. You really, there's a great scene where you start to understand Pauline politically by how she teaches her daughter in a complex school situation. And so even the, but then the daughter even points it out to say, hey, hey reader, you're not the only one who knows this. Pippa says, are you teaching me politics now? But really Pauline is showing us, the reader, how she deals with situations politically. And we see how that plays out later. And then, of course, the husband and Pauline 
kind of having their discussions about Pippa sort of build the beginning of a map of what's happening with them. And you do that with all the characters. And you're right. I was just thinking about this. Well, let me ask you this question. It seems like in the past 15 years, we see this in TV a lot, that we feel a lot of empathy towards bad characters. So like The Sopranos, we love Tony Soprano. He's a killer. Even Mad Men, Don Draper, we love him, even though he cheats on his wife, he does all these things. Your characters have to make very complex decisions morally, like in any war situation, a leader, a world leader would have to do, or any tense international situation. Why do you think this trend has happened that we start to love morally complex characters? And I will say your characters, while they're not Tony Soprano, they're morally complex. They have to do things that maybe you and I wouldn't do. I think that's just part of making them real, you know, um, because they're in, in real life, there aren't any saints, are there? In, in, in myth and so on, there are totally saintly people uh, who are holy and who never sin. But, but um, every, you know, that isn't me and um, it isn't anybody that I know. And so it's kind of realistic that people might have, might have flaws or, and doubts. Doubts about themselves, you know. Uh, uh, often, often um, uh, a hero in a thriller often will have no self-doubt. He will just be confident and strong, and he'll know what's tr- right and what's true. And in real life, people agonize about it, and they say, "Well, I'm, I've got to make the right decision here, but I'm not sure of all the facts, and I'm not even sure what is the right thing to do." And that's part of the drama. The reader then enters into that person's mind and becomes involved in that drama that the person is going through, that the character is going through. So, um, and I'm glad you mentioned um, Pauline's talks with Pippa because, you know, from the author's point of view, um, okay, not all of my readers are completely au fait with the world situation, and I don't expect them to be. I don't expect them to, they expect me to have more knowledge because I've researched the story. But it's a great way to put over some information that the reader needs without it being a you know a boring long page. Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? A data dump. You don't want a data dump. So for so for Pauline to have these aggressive questions from a teenage child, who's saying, "Yeah, but why do you do that? And what about this?" Just the way that as you know, just the way young teenagers do, and it's a good thing that they do. Shows that they're thinking. So sure. So Pepper comes out with these aggressive questions, and Pauline defends it. She also has to defend it in a way that isn't too technical. It doesn't have any jargon in it. Can't have political jargon. So this is a great way for me, as the author, to put across some information to the reader without getting boring. You, that's a really great point. Again, like like Pippa in that scene at least is the reader, and you're explaining to the reader this is what you could look out for how Pauline deals with world political situations. You're basically explaining to the reader right now about all of world politics from Pauline's point of view, just in the way she's interacting with her daughter. And it's good as a writer to remember that you don't have to say it directly to the reader. She says it to her daughter. And even with the daughter pointing out, oh, you're te- you're doing politics on me. That's okay. Because <laughs> the reader's not stupid. The reader is figuring it out also. So you might as well address it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you do that consciously or it just comes up in the storytelling or or while you're writing it, you realize, I don't want to act like I'm trying to fool the reader here. Like, I, I need to address it. Yeah, it's, I, I agree with you. That it's, it's, it's a bad mistake ever to try and fool the reader in any way. You know, um, uh, it's, I sometimes read a novel 
And uh, I think um, this author is pretending to know all about this subject, but he actually doesn't know much about it. You know, you see that often in a novel or a TV drama that's about business. Oh, yeah, totally. And I often think, wait a minute, whoever wrote this doesn't know a darn thing about business. So you can't fool people about that. You can't pull the wool over their eyes. So you've got to... You've got to find, you've got to either, you've got to do the research, or if for some reason you can't do that, you've got to find some way around it, anything so that you're not pretending to be something or, or pretending to have knowledge that you don't have. It's true. Like, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show Billions here in America on Showtime. I knew the creators and I was always sending comments in the first two seasons. Oh, you know, this is not quite, you know, the way it happens. And so, so I became an advisor on season three. Like they were very serious about making it as accurate as possible. And, uh, you know, hopefully I did a good job, but we'll see. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, but, but that brings to mind very interesting questions. And I always love these conversations because there's so much to unpack. There's a lot of things you, you the author, have to know to write this book. And, and, and let me back off and say first, you mentioned earlier about how Eye of the Needle was mostly about like one, two people dealing with this dramatic situation. And... I feel like thrillers fall into two categories, roughly. One where there's a single individual hero who's got the world against him, and at some point he's almost about to die and, and save him, him or herself and on and on. And then you have these books that are like more epic. And yours is, is this book never is epic in that you have really fleshed out characters, many of them all over the world, and you have to build their backstories and you have to feel what they're feeling and, and their decision-making and so on, they're each going to have their points where they're at the mercy of villains or forces beyond their control. I'm just curious, which to you is more enjoyable to write? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and I agree. And um, uh, the more complex kind of story is much more satisfying to write if you can bring it off. And it's it's more sad. I believe it's more satisfying to read because it's more credible. It's more like the real world, but it is more. But it's more difficult. And you, you'll you'll know that in never there are people uh, in different parts of the world uh, who some who a lot of the time are acting independently, but they're connected. So drawing all those people together in one story. It, it, at the beginning of the story, it may seem that they're only distantly connected. By the end, you know that everything that each does affects the other very profoundly. And drawing that together uh, is a complex business. And for me, it's a matter of planning. I have to plan all this in advance. I couldn't, I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't play it by ear, so to speak. I couldn't make it up as I go along. I, I make it up before I write chapter one so that when I begin writing the actual scenes, I've got a very clear idea of where everything is going. And that, for me, that's the only way to do it, especially with the complex novel. Although, you know, when I started out, I didn't plan, and my early books were, were all flops. I wrote 10 flops before I had a good one. And the good one, the one you mentioned, Eye of the Needle, was the first one that I planned. You know, I enjoyed some of those early ones. Uh, Paper oh, Money, I read. Uh, oh, really did you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, after we last spoke, I or uh, two times ago, I bought all of those, and I, I, pre I those those are good books. You're, you're hard on yourself with those. Oh, thank you. Well, that's very it's very pleasing to hear that. Um, they certainly didn't sell very well when they first came out, 
But um, uh, I do occasionally, yeah, I do occasionally get messages from readers who've read some of those early books and who've said to me they're not they're not as bad as you think. <laughs> but like when you when you say like in that you have to plan it all in advance, and this is very interesting both as a writer and a reader. Do you like kind of have a character bible for each one? Like you you put Tamara on the whiteboard and you just think of her whole story, her childhood, her parents, her love life, and you flesh it all out who she is, and then later on bits and pieces of that get into the book well it's the, the process of i do most of this in the in the planning process and and then then i elaborate on it when i'm writing the actual book but in the planning process i ask myself questions okay so i've got a story in which let's say take let's take the beginning of never there's a a, a young woman called tamara she's american and she's living in uh, a North African country called Chad, and she's working for the CIA. Okay, why is she working for the CIA? Where does she come? What, what were her parents like? Did her parents encourage her to do this work, or or are they kind of slightly horrified? And of course, in in the case of Tamara, you learn that her parents are really not very keen on this cloak and dagger stuff. In fact, her mother is a fundraiser for a um, an anti gun group, and. Uh, and Tamara, of course, turns out to be a crack shot with a gun. So much to her surprise, she's a crack shot. Yes, indeed. That's yes, that's right. And uh, by the way, um, those scenes the, in Tamara's backstory where she remembers her, her CIA training and her time at the um, at the training center that they call the farm. All those scenes, I got all those ideas out of um, an autobiography of somebody, a couple actually, a married couple who both worked for the CIA and they they wrote about all this stuff in this book that they wrote. And I got fabulous, all the most fabulous details from that book. So those are all authentic. But anyway, so I asked myself those questions, you know, um, for, for any for any character, um, who was the first person that he or she fell in love with? Mm. I could ask you that question. That would be, I'd be interested to know. You know, I've, I I don't know you well, but we've talked a lot and we've talked at great length. I'd be interested to know who is if I think uh, James. Now, when he was a teenager, maybe, and there was somebody who came into his life and he thought, "Oh wow, this is really the one." That, you know that sort of thing. So I asked myself those questions that that you'd be interested to ask of somebody you met and liked. Mm. And um, that's what I do with the characters, and that's how it builds up. One question leads to another. What's her mum like? What's her father like? What was her childhood like? Who was her first boyfriend? Was she clever in school, or was she rebellious? Uh, was she always getting told off for misbehaviour in class and that kind of thing? All of that builds up the character. And, of course, then some of the answers never get in the book, as, you, as you've pointed out, but I know them. Right. And the fact that you know them, you infuse into every other detail of the character that you reveal so that you get the sense of a fleshed out character. And I think, and again, you have many characters in this book that are so fully fleshed out. Again, I compare it to like, let's say a single hero thriller, where maybe in those cases, the hero's fleshed out and some people close to him, but hypothetically, like, let's just say the director of the CIA is just a jerk. And we just don't know why. We never know why. It's just you needed a jerk as the boss. You know, somebody, need, whoever wrote that needed a jerk as the boss. And but but you get the sense this is not a fully fleshed out character. They don't you don't know what's going on in their home life. You don't know what's going on in their other aspects of their life. And I think it's really important that you do you have figured out 
And I really get that sense in this book, what's going on in all the characters' lives in order, in order to bring them to life. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's very important. It's, it's, because, and it's important because it enhances everything else. So when those people are in trouble, it's somebody who you know and like is in trouble rather than just, you know, the character in the story. And what's interesting is that I could still feel that even though you don't reveal all the details. So because like, like you said, you could ask these questions to me and I may tell you some details, I may not, but still you get a sense that the details are there. And I think that's very important as well, that details aren't, aren't just there to, to inform the story. The details are there to make the person real so the person could be a real relatable person in the story. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's why um, my Chinese hero, for example, Chiang Kai, who is head of the uh, Foreign Intelligence Department of the Secret Service in Beijing, he's married to a beautiful woman who's a little younger than he is and is a movie star in China. And that you don't expect that. People don't expect that in a, in a spy story. And of course, in any novel, it's always good to do things that the reader isn't actually expecting. That makes the reader, oh, wow, wow. So he's married to a movie star. I wasn't expecting that. I love it when readers think I wasn't expecting that. I love that detail too. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I love that detail also because typically in like these types of things where let's say it's China and it's the US, you're only looking in the highest office and everybody's making decisions about what to do and who to attack. But the fact that someone is a movie star shows that, oh, wait a second. China has movie stars. They're a real country with real citizens who watch movies. Like it gives life to the country as well. Uh, yes, indeed. And that's part of it. And you're quite right. And I often feel in a novel when something takes place in you know, an unfamiliar country, you often feel, well, uh, it, it could sort of be anywhere. And I really wanted the particularly the two exotic places in Never, uh, China and the Sahara Desert. I pick those places particularly because they're interesting and exotic, but also, as you say, people where real people really live. So that's why there's a scene when Tamara gets invited to have dinner in an ordinary home in Chad, the home of quite a, a not very wealthy person, uh, a woman with a family, and Tamara's invited to dinner there. And so you see, you see how they live, what their house is like, and of course, in many um, North African countries, um, people don't sit at a table to have dinner. And that's something you would just take for granted normally. Of course, how, of course, people sit at a table. Well, what else would they do? Well, they sit cross-legged on the floor to eat. And uh, so, you, so you get a sense, that kind of detail gives you a sense of a real place as opposed to just, you know, uh, a name on a map. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a second, actually, because... There's several layers of knowledge that the reader doesn't know and you have to know. And that's like the, the next layer deeper. First, it was the, is the, all this knowledge of the, the characters, the fictional characters and how to make them relatable and how they can all have wants and desires and the reasons why they have those wants and desires. But you said something else, which is that because these characters start off separate, but they, you, they slowly and slowly interact to create this worldwide situation, you plan that all in advance. It's very fascinating to me how, because of that dinner early on, that puts a thought in someone's head that leads to a lot of stuff happening. You know, it's all connected with the 
other CIA officer and or that woman and Tamara, and, and you plant the seeds of doubt in everybody's head when they start meeting each other. It's a puzzle. Like, how am I going to get this woman into the Sahara Desert? Well, there's a conversation and things start to, to happen. Yeah, that's right. And of course, in, uh, in constructing this, it often happens that um, when you get to the dramatic point and you need this person in the story, what I do, and I suspect all the novelists do, is I go back a few chapters and I find a place to casually introduce this mm. character. Because what you don't want is the reader to get the feeling he's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> right. You don't want the reader to think about me making it up. So if a, a character has been introduced in a nice, interesting way, but not particularly dramatic, and then 200 pages later, that character plays an important role in a dramatic scene, it doesn't look as if I've invented the character just for that scene, which, of course, I actually have. <laughs> right. Well, well, that, that's interesting because you said you said you like to um, for the reader to say, I didn't expect that. So the question is, do you as the writer like moments where a character does something that you didn't expect? So like you're writing and you're writing, and you're writing, and then suddenly you think of a detail. Do you feel the reader is not going to be surprised unless you're surprised first? Well, not necessarily. I mean, the best surprises are very carefully constructed, really. But it, but you're right in that it does sometimes happen. Um, you know, I, I've written the outline. I'm now expanding on everything in the outline, and I'm writing the first draft of the novel. And um, I think of some aspect of this person's character or something that they do that is really kind of charming and interesting, and it really enlarges that person. And I wasn't necessarily looking for it. Um, I was just, you know, a lot of what I do sit, consists of looking out of the window and just letting my mind wander. It's, sometimes it doesn't feel really feel like work, which is embarrassing because it is. But sometimes in that sort of in that sort of zone, something occurs to me that, wow, yes, that's exactly what that character would do. That's exactly what he would like. That's exactly how he'd want to spend his evenings. So that kind of thing that suddenly comes and it's unexpected by me. And that generally, I generally feel that that's, that's a nice touch that the reader will enjoy. And then, you know, then there's this second layer of knowledge, which is, for instance, you have these, these events that occur in Chad. I vaguely know Chad as a country. Did you visit Chad or did you just read books, watch documentaries? Like, what did you do before you started even writing one word? Like, why did you decide Chad and Sudan and everything? Chad is really the center for the operation between the American military and the French military to combat jihadism in North Africa. And the American embassy in Chad, in the capital, capital city is called Ndjamena, the American embassy there is a 13-acre compound. Now, you, for a little country like Chad, the Americans don't need 13 acres for their embassy, but the, but the reason for that is that it's the military headquarters as well. And there's a big military presence there. So that's why I chose Chad in particular. I couldn't go there because it was locked down and mm. the planes weren't flying. Mm. So I talked to people who had lived there. I looked at a lot of photographs. I watched some movies. There, some movies have been shot in Chad and there's a Chadian director who is known internationally. I can't remember his name, so he's not that well known, but he's good. And I, so I watched a couple of movies. That gave me a really good sense of the landscape and the people's clothes and the traffic 
and all of that kind of thing. And then there's one more thing, which I'm sure you know about, called Google Earth. And it means that you can see a satellite picture of any place on the planet. So in the parts of the story that take place right out there in the Sahara Desert, uh, places that I probably would have been too scared to go to, you know, crossing the Sahara Desert, there is no safe way to do that. But you can see any place in the Sahara Desert, you can see a satellite picture. To tell you the truth, some of them look all the same. I mean, it's a lot of sand. But then there are other things there are like um, what they call informal gas stations in the Sahara uh. Desert. And, um, you know, they, they, have no, they don't have pumps. They don't have, you know, petrol pumps. Uh, what they have is big containers, drums of gasoline. And, <laughs> you know, I guess once a week, a, a vehicle comes by wanting gasoline and they, you know, they just pour it into the, into the they, they, they take it out of the, out of the, um, uh, out, of, out of the drum in a jug and they just pour it into the, uh, into the pipe in the in the car or truck it usually would be or a pickup so and so you would never and all it is is these stacks of drums and they put some kind of a cover over to keep the sun off the people who were there and that's it that's a gas station in the middle of the sahara that's the kind of thing you know it's brilliant to see that kind of thing so so like is that something you remembered from some book you had read previously or did you did you start them across the Sahara, and you said, oh, I don't really know what happens there. Did you start doing the research then? Oh, yeah. At that point, um, well, I, I don't remember whether I did that search at the, did that research at the outline stage or the writing the first draft stage, but at some point I realized you cannot cross the Sahara Desert in a vehicle without filling up with gas. And how is this done? And um, uh, I guess I probably... Uh, I probably Googled um, Sahara gas station. Hmm. Uh, that was that may have been, but I certainly found pictures of these uh, very exotic-looking places, and and I used them, of course, um, in the novel because uh, first of all, uh, first of all, it's real. Secondly, it kind of underlines what a strange situation you're in if you do try to drive across the Sahara Desert. It reminds me of the very great classic movie, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, where I feel the desert is also a character in the movie. You know, oh, yes. you, you feel even the structure of the movie is a desert. Like you, you're, they're, they're going across the desert and it's just long and even boring, but on purpose. It was like a beautiful boring because you're with them in the desert. Yeah. And yeah. and these scenes, just the realism of it, just reminds me of that. Like you, it, you, it's a way to bring it to life, um, you know. And then and then, of course, there's the knowledge of the political situations and how these things could occur. And you refer to World War One in the very very beginning, but just the idea that wars are often fought now as proxy wars in local situations but they could erupt into something much bigger. I mean, the entire Cold War was in proxy situations, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and on and on. You really get into so many details of not only the local micro situations, but the macro situation. Like you start off by saying, World War I was a war that nobody wanted, and yet it happened. I bet if you ask the average person, including me, by the way, why did World War I start? No one really knows. <laughs> like, oh yeah, some Archduke got assassinated, but that's not really why it happened. 
That's the interesting thing for me, because the assassination in Sarajevo was in itself not a very important event. In Never, the crisis begins when an American soldier is shot by a terrorist with a Chinese rifle. And something that small, I mean, it's, and of course, Americans become very angry when one of their own is shot, quite rightly, and you, you respect them for it. On the other hand, one person is one person. But in both cases, the emperor of Austria has to make a response to that killing. And the president of the United States has to respond to what's happened in Chad. And then the question is, does the response escalate the tension? And very often it does. Sometimes a national leader, a president or a prime minister will back off and say, OK, we're not going to fight about this. This is not worth a fight. But, you know, they don't get any thanks from the voters for that. Voters want their leaders to be strong. They want the leader to say, we are not going to be pushed around. You know, we have basically here in the UK at the moment, we have a prime minister. And really, the only thing he knows how to do is bang the table and say, we will not be pushed around by the French and the Germans. We are the Brits and we're OK. Uh, and it, it's, it, it's, not just, it's not just my country. It's most countries. People want their leaders to be strong. And that pushes prime ministers and presidents into escalating, into doing things that are in fact dangerous. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, The same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important and I I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. 
You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In your book, Never, an incident happens and President Pauline Green has to respond. And maybe she responds in a very nuanced, you know, UN style way. And, and even that there was some nuance, but that sort of starts the escalation of tensions between these various countries that are involved. And it's not just like somebody attacks somebody and now we have to respond. It it built up, it became complicated. And I sort of feel like every war starts that way. Like World War II, even the birth of that, like in the, if in the US, if you ask somebody, well, why did World War II start? Somebody might say, well, Pearl Harbor. And another person might say the Holocaust, but it wasn't really either of those events. And I think that's probably true for every single war is that there's the narrative that's put out to the people, but then there's the nuance that what really happened. I think that's absolutely right. These things generally don't really have one cause. And I think Everybody with any sense is really glad that the Nazis were defeated. I mean, that was actually a great achievement, but it actually wasn't what was in the minds of a lot of the uh, national leaders of the world back in 1939. Basically, Britain got involved in the war because the Germans invaded Poland. Britain had guaranteed the independence of Poland and the Germans invaded Poland. And we declared war on Germany and did nothing about it for about nine months. They called it the phony war because the, the war was on, but there was no fighting. And then other things happened which galvanized. And of course, one of the huge events was Pearl Harbor. Now, here's an example. A day or two after Pearl Harbor, Hitler declared war on the United States. Now, if you had a contest for the dumbest decision ever made by a political leader, the Germans were getting, getting beaten up in Russia at the time. You know, they had they had invaded the Nazis had invaded Russia six months earlier, and they they were getting beaten up and they were freezing to death in the cold. And at that moment, Hitler declares war on the on the richest and most powerful country in the world. I mean, it's 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 kind of unbelievable. And of course, you'd never put it in a novel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess maybe he thought that just like he was getting torn on two fronts, maybe he thought the US would get torn between a Pacific front and a European front. But obviously we had we had more resources than than Germany did. I say we, the US had more resources than than Germany did. But yeah, I never thought about that as 
I actually didn't know that Hitler had declared war on the U.S. two days after Pearl Harbor. But that shows you how little people actually know. I mean, I was taught in the same school as everyone else. We were just taught Pearl Harbor, and then we declared war on everybody. I didn't know that Hitler also had declared war on the U.S. Oh, no. oh yeah, absolutely. And, and here's something that, that we don't often say, James. When Hitler did that, we here in Europe went hurrah. Because, you know, there's a lot of resistance in the United States from joining in a European war. Understandably, what was it to do with them? I mean, some people wanted to, but some people said, wait a minute. And President Roosevelt was not keen on getting involved in a war in Europe. Then Hitler declared war on the United States. And we, you know, Churchill spent a lot of time trying to persuade Roosevelt to help, you know, and, uh, and to get involved in the war, and, and Roosevelt was saying no. And then this happened, Hitler declares war, and quietly and in secret, all over England, people were saying, yippee. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it's interesting because, again, Germany invaded Poland in 1939. It was two and a half years later that, that's a long time in, in war terms. So, and, yeah, you know, another interesting thing, and, and I want to, we'll get back to the war stuff in a second and how the tensions build up in Never. One thing that I also found fascinating was you kept us going. Like, I didn't really understand the full scope of how epic the novel was going to be for a while, but you had enough really super high intensity things and interesting characters happening to lead me along. So I kept going as things got more and more intense. If you had just started off right away with, we've got this world situation happening, that might've been too fast. So I'm yeah. just curious, you're thinking there, like a lot of authors say, get the main character kidnapped in the first scene. And now, we, now we're off to the races. You know, what do you think about there? Do you feel a pressure to get to the, the central issues or do you feel like, okay, how am I going to just make this a cliffhanger right from the beginning, regardless of how close I am to the core issues? I feel that you can't go full out right from the start. It's a little bit like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called Spinal Tap, which is a comedy about a yeah. rock band. And you're, and you're, Michael and, McKean in that too. That's right. And, yeah. and um, so that they can always have something extra to give, the amplifiers go up to 11. All amplifiers, the volume control goes up to 10, right? Zero to 10. But mm. theirs go up to 11. And this is one of the, you know, this is one of the stupid yeah. jokes in the film. And but the, but it, it makes a point, you see, because if you start on full volume, you've got nowhere to go. And that's what I think about a thriller. If you start with a situation of tremendous danger, you've got nowhere to go. So I, for me, as a reader and as an author, there must be drama at the start, but it can be relatively low key. It must give you space to escalate. The drama's got to escalate. So that with each chapter, the reader is thinking, oh, my God, now this. That's right. Like, I remember thinking in one of the first few chapters that there was something that you got to very fast that was reminiscent of maybe one of the most dramatic situations in the Obama administration. But it really was just a, a step on the way to where you were going. And, but but it was it was obviously it was huge. And so I kept, you know, you keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. I'm I'm very glad you felt that way because that was how I wanted you to feel. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure I was like led very well by the the writing all 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 through the book. I have no doubt of that. And you know, then but now I'm I'm thinking too of like uh, again these thrillers that are individual heroes. Like for instance, let's just take the Born Identity as an example. It starts off with more mystery than thrill in the sense. I mean, there's a thriller like aspect. He has to fight his way out of the Swiss bank or whatever, but you really, there's mystery. You don't know who he is. He doesn't know who he is. 
And that, of course, leads to the much bigger picture once you realize what's going on. And so, yeah, what's that's an interesting thing, too. Like, what's the interweaving between mystery and thriller? Some thriller writers, I feel, I don't want to say they're making up as they go along, but you just they just feel like, okay, if I just end every chapter with a cliffhanger and something dramatic happening, I'll get to the next chapter. And there's not really mystery. You even know right away who the bad guys are, who the good guys are, but there's a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. And what's the role of mystery in a thriller? Well, it's optional, really. I, I think it can be very good um, when something, dramatic things begin to happen and you're not quite sure why. Uh, but a little of that, for me, a little of that goes a long way. I don't like the kind of story where you're, you're always baffled about why something's happened. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler, great author of hardcore detective stories, said, um, when in doubt, have a man come through the door with a gun in his hand. That was one of his mottos. And that's all very well occasionally, but normally the drama is more exciting if you know exactly what's going on. And um, so let's say that there's, there's a threat to somebody we like. The threat that, you know, danger shouldn't come out of nowhere. There should be suspicion and anxiety. And then the, the person would be trying to... Um, is this real or am I imagining this? Something strange is happening. So then there would be a process of the character finding out more and more about the danger that seems to be approaching. It still happened very quickly, but before the actual bang where somebody uh, bursts in, uses violence, pulls a weapon, there should be a long lead up to that because that's what generates the tension. And that's what makes us as readers keep turning the pages. Oh my God, now what? Now it's, so I, yeah, so you've mentioned this and you know, it's ever so easy to end each chapter with something totally unexpected and dangerous. But if there's no logic to it, it becomes a little bit repetitive. Whereas if you know the reasons for these things, you know, the thinking of the bad guy and the thinking of the good people I think the drama is enhanced by that. Is it a little easier when there's the epic style where you have the, all these multiple characters and different stations in life? When you've kind of fleshed out one in this situation, you could go to another and you could go to another and as opposed to always driving one character forward? Yeah. May I say I'm a huge fan of Jack Reacher and uh, the author Lee Child is a friend of mine. And uh, I have read all of the books and I love them all. Uh, and they are, your, but you're right, they are absolutely completely different from what I do. My books are much longer. I couldn't do a book a year. Uh, I wrote never very quickly, but it was still a year and a half. And, and, um, that, and that was because of the lockdown. I had nothing else to do. But normally it takes me two and a half, three years to complete a book. So I couldn't write those kind of stories and I couldn't write them that quickly. But I like this kind of story. The other thing about this kind of story is that it shows you a much bigger wedge of human life. So in a long novel, you've got time to have characters from the President of the United States to the character of Kia, who is an Arab woman, a young widow with a child living on the shores of Lake Chad in the country of Chad. And so you and I enjoy that big social range of the people in the story. It's like, um, you know, Mozart's early operas are like that. They, they tell they picture a whole society. You think of... Um, of uh, the marriage of Figaro. Um, you know, we have the Count and his wife and his servants 
and we then we have the middle class people, the priest and the uh, the um, uh, there's a notary in it, I think. So you see, and then we have all the village people who usefully come on and sing the choruses, and it's a comedy, but you've got a picture of a whole society. And I like that in a novel. So, uh, and then of course, in in Never, it's it's not just a society; it's kind of the world. You know, it's the it's the it's the the very very powerful president of China, president of the United States, and the uh, secret agents who are involved in a lot of the action, and then some people who are just at the kind of at the bottom of the income scale. Some of the poorest people in the world are also in the story. I I like that. I like it in a story that I read, and I like it in what I'm writing. And I guess it's very interesting because. Like take the Jack Reacher novels, for instance, which I also very much enjoy. Uh, you you get a sense of a code of values that this hero has. And because there's so much focus throughout the book on that code, you really get immersed in it. Like, what would Jack Reacher do here? And 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 you kind of want to be like him. Like, you want to have that kind of code. And there's something romantic about his, his wandering and, and so on. And in Never, I get a sense of the, the values and, and ethics and code of all the different characters, but also there's this worldview that you have about what you're making a statement, not only about an individual, but about what could happen in the world. What is happening and where could this lead if we're not careful? And you fictionalize, you know, a possible result for the real world. Like everything you write about in the book could happen, including yeah. the ending, which I was practically crying at the ending and just the way you ended it. So you have this view that, again, like you stated in the very beginning, World War One, nobody wanted to happen, but nuance and escalation start building things up. And even these proxy wars could turn very dangerous and worldwide. You know, so far, the world's been lucky. Like the US and the old Soviet Union didn't throw nuclear weapons at each other, even though there were moments, many moments, more than people realized where they could have. And China right now is kind of surrounding Taiwan and there's... This, you know, we're, we're doing also, you know, 35 countries are doing military exercises outside of China right now. There's always danger in the air. What are you scared of? I think there's a lot to be scared of. I've lived all my life with the threat of nuclear war because I was born in 1949, uh, around about the time the Russians exploded their first nuclear device. So that has always been with me. And in 1962, I was actually too young to understand the danger we were in over the Cuban Missile Crisis. Although Barbara, my wife, who's a little bit older than I am, does remember bed and thinking, if I go to sleep now, I may never wake up hmm. while that missile crisis was on. But after that, for the next 20 years or so, we kind of got comfortable with the Russians. And we, we had, what was it called? Peaceful coexistence was the slogan. And in fact, we started to reduce the stockpiles of nuclear weapons in the world. And I think that lulled us into a false sense of security because that, that reduction of nuclear armament stopped quite soon. And we started to build up the arsenals again. More countries got nuclear weapons. But I don't think, I think, first of all, we haven't woken up to the fact that the danger of nuclear war now is greater than it's ever been. And the other thing, outside of, of my novel, outside of Never, we also have two other dangers that could wipe us out. Climate change could kill us all, and a virus could kill us all. And so there's a feeling, I think, 
that the world, that the human race is in danger now. Stronger feeling than there has ever been before in my life. Maybe that feeling sort of seeped into my unconscious mind and maybe that was what drove me to right never. Well, think about it with COVID, you know, nobody still knows. I mean, there's, there's, every, there's a spectrum of, oh, this was a random virus that got too powerful to it was completely weaponized and sent on purpose. And in the middle of that spectrum is probably somewhere is the truth. Like maybe the virus was modified and leaked or who knows. I've done people on the podcast from one end of the spectrum to the other and there's no conclusion. But there was at least the hint that a weaponized virus could at some point be made. And that's just as you know horrible as a nuclear event in some ways because the same number of people would, would die maybe even more you know terribly. And so maybe that was kind of on the mind for the first time since the Cold War ended. Because you're right, I think we have gotten into a false sense of complacency that there won't be nuclear weapons. But when we started reducing our weapons, like in the 70s, it was also because of the philosophy of mutual assured destruction, that it's pointless to have too many nuclear weapons because it only takes a few to destroy the world. And it's pointless to even send one because the whole world's going to be destroyed then. So that's kind of what kept the leaders of yeah. the U.S. and the Soviet Union at bay. But now that that philosophy is not really around anymore, and there are no. bad actors in the world that don't care anyway. So you're right. There's, there's kind of a, a danger if we're not on top of it. I, th I think that's absolutely right. And um, uh, all of those things scare me. Uh, and I think, um, you know, uh, somebody asked me uh, uh, recently, um, where, where do you want to be if a nuclear war starts? And I thought about it, and and I said I, I want to be I want to be right on the spot where the bomb lands, because then I, <laughs> right. I won't know, I'll know nothing at all about it, and you know you get a mile away from there and you'll burn to death. That can't be good. Hundred miles away and you'll probably die of starvation in the nuclear winter. So I think that those that go first will have the best ending. You ever you ever see the uh, graphic novel, which also became a movie, uh, Barefoot Jen, about a young boy who lived in Hiroshima? No. Uh, it's it's beautiful, and you see his experiences right after Hiroshima, and it's horrific. Like, and then in the movie version, he watches his sister like melt in front of him, and uh, and the reason I'm describing it so graphically is I thought, oh, this will be a good my my daughters love cartoons. I'll let them watch this cartoon. It was a cartoon. And I let my five-year-old or four-year-old watch this cartoon. And then at night, she woke up. She was having a, a nightmare, but she was crying in the nightmare. And she was up and pounding her bed, like, even though she was still asleep. And I felt so bad that I had made her watch that movie. I didn't make her. I mean, we stopped in the middle, but I'm so, I'm so horrified that I exposed her to that movie. But uh, well, you, you, I, I think it's easy to underestimate the effect of this kind of thing on children, particularly if they're imaginative children. And I remember as a child being being scared of the dark, just having seen a few scary things. I was scared of the dark for years as a child. Yeah, I know it's and, you know, of course, those things then impact your entire life later. So if, if someone listening to this said, boy, I would love to write a thriller novel, but I don't know even where to start. Obviously, one place to start is what are fertile topics for thrillers? Obviously, the end of the world, one way or the other, is a fertile topic uh, and, and constructing it in an interesting way. What are like fertile topics that, that you think about when you're trying to decide of the scope of a novel? 
ideas sort of come to me from TV and the newspapers and novels that I read, history books in particular. And I think the thing is, you have, first of all, you have to you have to have your mind open to those ideas. And so I often think when something interests me, I often think, I wonder if I could write a story about that. And I, I, I imagine that most, most of us novelists are like that. We, we are constantly thinking, I wonder if I could make a story about that. And, that. and so, I mean, that's how you begin. But the ideas, generally speaking, there's no shortage of ideas. The thing is, the thing is, how you put it together, because look, um, a novel is consists of between fifty and a hundred dramatic scenes. Mm. Okay, fifty is a shortish novel. Our average a hundred is quite a long, but most novels are built like that. There are a series of dramatic scenes, and um, most of the uh, and, and you need fifty to a hundred. So if you analyze the Jane Austen story, for example, it's about 50 dramatic scenes. Uh, and do the same with the Jack Reacher, and I bet you'd find roughly the same. Uh, and that's how they're constructed now. The idea has to generate 50 dramatic scenes, at least. Mm. A lot of time, you talk to people as an author, you talk to people about ideas for books, and they say, I'll give you an idea for a book, and they'll tell a story about something, and it, often a real thing, this happened to my father in the war. This happened. This happened to my father in Vietnam, uh, or, or or this 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 happened to somebody I knew. Or and and you look at it and you think about it and you say, okay, that's three scenes. Might make a short story, but it's not a novel. The idea for a novel has to generate much more drama than that. So what you're really looking for is not not the cute idea. You're looking for something that will generate a lot of drama in, in different stages, one after the other, 50 or 100 scenes, all connected, all featuring a group of characters, and their situation throughout these 50 or 100 scenes must always be interesting. Every scene must make you want to read the next scene. So d d describe what you mean by dramatic scene. Well, a dramatic scene is a scene in which there's a question. Let's say um, somebody tells a lie, okay? There's, there's a scene, this guy is under pressure. Somebody says to him, did you really do that? And he says, no, I would never do that. That absolutely never happened. And then he thinks, oh my God, I'm gonna be found out. Now there's the dramatic scene. There's, he's, put in a, he's put under pressure. He has to make the decision. He tells the lie. And then he thinks, I'm gonna be found out. What am I going to do about this? That's a dramatic scene, okay? It could be, here's another dramatic scene. Um, a guy, uh, uh, there's, there's this girl that a guy really likes. He really likes her, but he thinks she's never going to be interested in me. But I'm going to ask her anyway. And he finally works up, out the courage to ask her. And he says something there are loads of ways for this scene to go. It's a, it's, it's a scene that's in practically every novel, actually. But finally, he says to her, he says to her, you know, I enjoy talking to you so much. Uh, would you go out with me for just, just for dinner or, or a hamburger or coffee or something? And he thinks she's never going to do She's never going to. I'm not, I'm not in her class. And she says, yeah, why not? That's a great scene. Uh, it's got a beginning. He adores her. It's got a, a moment of decision. He asks the question. It's got a result. Uh, uh, 
she says yes. And you also think, now, what's going to happen when they go on a date? Those are two dramatic scenes, both of them very commonplace. Each of those scenes, the lie and asking for the date, each of those scenes has been in, you know, a hundred novels, a thousand novels, I don't even know. But that, that that's exactly what it is. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. It begins with an anxiety, a worry. It passes through a moment of action or decision. And then it, it goes then into uh, the, the end, which is satisfying, but raises another question. That is great. And you could even throw in other, I guess you could throw in other aspects of the arc of the hero. Like for instance, the guy asking the girl out on the date, maybe he has compatriots who are encouraging him but then other people are saying, no, you're a loser. You'll never, she'll never go out with you. So he's dealing with conflict along the way, bigger and bigger, perhaps, until he finally asks her. He's reluctant at first to ask her because he's so scared. So you have elements of the arc of the hero and perhaps in each dramatic scene as well. Oh, absolutely. And those kind of elements that you've mentioned are really important in enhancing the drama, in beefing it up, making it more. Now, in your version of this scene, it's not just a, a man and a woman. It's a man who's already had conversations with his friends and where he's worried about it before. And he said to one friend, I don't know, what do you think? Shall I ask her? And the friend says, says, well, go for it. What can you lose? And he asks somebody else. And the other person says, don't make a fool of yourself. You're going to feel such an idiot. She's going to say, are you kidding? I'm never going out with somebody like you. So that now when we come to the scene that we were talking about, it's been beefed up by previous scenes. It's, I was talking mm. earlier about how you prepare for stuff. You prepare the reader. And those conversations with the people who said ask her and the people who said don't ask her, all part of creating that drama. It's interesting, too, because two, two things come out of that. One is writing a first draft, you have to be aware it's very much a first draft because you could you, things will happen and then you backfill later to make sure they happen for a reason. And the other thing is, is that you probably have a repertoire or a toolbox of styles of dramatic scenes. Like probably what sets you apart, let's say from, you said you've been doing this 50 years, let's say someone who's just starting doesn't have that same repertoire, uh, uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of hundreds of different types of dramatic scenes to, to draw from. And I, I bet that helps with the pacing of the, the thriller, the, the more knowledge you have about types of dramatic scenes, like in a very clinical way. Well, you're, you're right about that. But, but you know, um, most people who sit down to write a novel already have a strong sense of what kind of drama can happen because they're readers. You know, nobody ever, nobody ever becomes a novel and, and starts at the age of, uh, a novelist and starts at the age of 21. It's like being a violinist. If you want to be a concert violinist, you cannot start at the age of 21. You've got to start at the age of four. And it's the same being a novelist. Every novelist I've ever known well enough, at least, you know, to talk to them is somebody who has loved stories and reading since a very young age, and they still do. And so you get to whenever it is that you write your first novel. Uh, my, I was a bit early. I was in my mid-20s. Many people start in their 30s or 40s. By the time you get to that age, you've read hundreds of novels. And, you know, starting with um, the one I always remember is Noddy Goes to Toy Town, which is I don't a know story. That one. <laughs> well, it's huge, huge in the UK, but I don't, Americans don't generally know. But it's about, you know, all the characters are toys, dramatic things happen. 
And uh, I, you know, I, I just loved that when I was four. I can still remember how much I liked those stories when I was four. And that's how, and then it, it goes on from there. So, so it's true that obviously writing, as I have been doing for so many years, has given me a lot of extra knowledge. But I came to it with a huge library of characters and situations and things I liked and things that made me scared or made me laugh. When I was 12 years old, I read my first James Bond story. I thought it was the greatest thing that had ever happened. I loved that. It was Live and Let Die, which is one of the best ones, actually. And uh, I just, uh, and I read them all then from the age of 12. I couldn't afford to buy them. I got bought, borrowed them from the public library, read them all over the next few years. And, um, you, you know, the thing that I, the thing that I uh, kept from that period of, of my reading life was the joy of having a new James Bond book in my hand to read, knowing that it was going to be an enormous pleasure for me. And I thought then in my 20s, when I started to try and write novels, I thought, now, now there's no point in setting the bar low. This is what I've got to do for, for readers of my book. I've got to, they've got to hold the new book in their hand and think, oh boy, I know this is going to be great. And, uh, th- you know, that sort of, that's always been, that's always been my target. Well, definitely never just blew me away. It's not your average thriller. It's, it's really epic and it's, it's, it's great. Like I, I can't express it enough. I'm so glad you wrote this and I'm so glad I, I read it and enjoyed it and, and, and everything. What's next? What's the next, what's ne- you must be writing a, ne- a next book now. It's been probably a, a while since you finished this because it takes a while to get published. Uh, I, it's nine months since I finished Never. And yes, I've been writing another story since then because I never stop. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy this process so much that I really don't want People sometimes say to me, I suppose you take six months off after you finish your book. Hell no. Uh, no, I, I, six days is more like it. Uh, just because even if I say I'm not going to work for the next two weeks, you know, after about a week, I start thinking of story ideas. and I, I want to get to work on them. <laughs> I don't want to lie on the beach anymore. I want to write the story. So, yes, I've been working on um, uh, a new story. I'm not ready to talk about it just yet, James. I apologize for saying I'm not going to answer the question like a politician. Uh, the reason is that it's still at a stage where it could change completely or I could even throw it away. I once did that. I once worked on a story for a year and threw it away. And I'll, t- I'll tell you why. I got a, I was, this was set in the world of banking and finance. It was a thriller set in the world of finance. And while I was working on it, I got this letter from a, a reader a woman who said, I, I, I just read Eye of the Needle and I just had to write and let you know that I was sitting on the edge of my chair while I read it. And, you know, I, that, that pleases me enormously. I love it when readers say something like that. But I, then I thought of, of the book I was writing and I thought, will she sit on the edge of her chair? And the answer was no, I don't think she will. And so I threw it away. That's Breaks so interesting. Heart. Do you think you're right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I could go back to it, but I never have. It just wasn't good enough. Breaks your heart to throw away a year's work. But look, um, so far, I've never had a dud. Uh, touch wood. 
Okay. And um, I think- I, I love the idea of you doing a financial thriller though. Like I love all the Paul Erdman novels from, from the 70s and 80s uh, that were financial thrillers. Well, you know, there have been some great ones and I've enjoyed them too. But there's not a lot of them though. There's more legal thrillers in terms of like categories like that. Yeah, well, see, the courtroom is a theater, isn't it? A courtroom drama is great. And, you know, if, um, Shakespeare wrote one. Uh, Merchant of Venice is a courtroom yeah. drama. And it's ready-made, isn't it? It's like an assassination story. You know, The Day of the Jackal is an assassination story. Um, Rogue Mail, about a guy who tries to assassinate Hitler. There are lots of assassinations. And, you know, there's the mission, the preparation, the travel, the setup for the climax. It's guaranteed. You know, it's like, a, like the 12-bar blues. It always works. And a courtroom drama is like that. But a financial thriller, there isn't an obvious stage for it. I mean, if things take place in the boardroom, well, hell, that's not very interesting. Or, or phone calls all the time. So, so I think, well, anyway, it didn't work for me. It has worked for other writers. Um, that's certainly true, and I've enjoyed those books. But I did not succeed in writing my financial thriller, and I threw it away. And I'm glad I did, because I think readers would have been disappointed. Well, you know, once again, Ken, never is fantastic. I can't wait now to hear about the next one. You have to come back when you write the next one. And uh, whether it's a political thriller or a financial thriller or whatever, I'll, I'm, I'm reading it. And thank you so much for once again coming on the podcast and sharing insights into your process. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, James. Thanks for having me. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.